Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 132 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest today is Kati Martin. Kati is an author, journalist, and correspondent who has worked with National Public Radio and later with ABC News, where she was the bureau chief in Germany. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Times of London, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Vanity Fair, and many other publications. She has also published nine books and has served as an advocate for human rights all over the world, including as the chair of the International Women's Health Coalition and on the board of directors for the International Rescue Committee. I invited Kati onto the podcast to discuss her book, True Believer, Stalin's Last American Spy, published in 2019. It's the story of Noel Field, a State Department Foreign Service officer and devoted communist ideologue who was part of a Soviet spy network inside the U.S. government in the years leading up to World War II. Noel ultimately suffered tremendous consequences for his role as a spy, but not as a result of a trial in the U.S. Instead, despite his unfailing loyalty to the Communist Party, he spent years in a Hungarian prison as a suspected double agent. But before we dive into this story, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Anthony M. and Louis P. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Kati, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Justin. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad to hear that. I first read True Believer probably close to two years ago now, so I'm really happy that we were finally able to get in touch and share this story with a wider audience. Me too. It's a, it's a story that really deserves a wider audience in its bizarreness and in its relevance for what the world today, our troubled world today, because this is really the story of a man who was captured early by a cult, the cult being hmm. that of Stalin. Yes, it was unbelievable to me the, the level of, of capture that you mentioned there, because I, I've read quite a few books over the past few years, uh, many of them focusing kind of on this general time period and some of the big players, of course, but there were still just some absolutely jaw-dropping moments throughout this book. I could not believe <laughs> what I was reading, honestly, and I know we're going to get into that, but it it really took my breath away in some big ways. So I'm glad that we can share some of this with uh, my listeners as well. Thank and you. I also understand, Kati, that you have a very 
personal connection to this story as well. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a really bizarre connection. So I grew up during the Cold War in Budapest, born Hungarian, the child of, of Hungarians who were reporting for, for the Americans, which was a pretty hazardous thing to be doing during the Cold War. My, my dad was the AP correspondent in Budapest, my mother, UPI. And they intersected with our hero or I guess more correctly, anti-hero, because Noel Field was anything but a hero. But at any rate, they connected with him in prison because my parents were eventually jailed as CIA agents, which they were not. They were just very good reporters at a time when reporting the truth was hazardous duty. So they were they were jailed when I was six years old in the mid-50s. My father was actually in the in the same cell that Noel Field had occupied and had the same interrogator and so learned learned the details of Noel Field's imprisonment. But long before that, in the late 40s, when our story really, really takes off in 1948, when Noel Field was was first abducted by Stalin's agents, he'd been living in Switzerland, hoping because he was a totally convinced, faithful communist and waiting only for to be summoned to serve in Moscow, he was abducted. And this will require you and I to tell the tale of why a communist would be abducted by the communists, a complex, a complex tale that's worth Telling. At any rate, long story short, he was grabbed. He went from Zurich to Prague, which was already then Soviet Russian occupied, and abducted by Stalin's henchmen and, and driven to Budapest. And my parents were then covering the news in Budapest and reported on this abduction, never realizing that they would end up in the same prison as Noel Field. And then during the Hungarian Revolution, the failed attempt by Hungarian freedom fighters to get rid of the Soviet occupiers, my parents located Noel Field and his wife, Hertha, who's very much a part of this this drama because Hertha Mm -hmm. followed him wherever he went, in sort of semi-hiding in Budapest and conducted the only press interview that the fields ever gave. So I was I inherited that interview and decided that there was an incredible spy story here and an almost Agatha Christie like uh, plot because not only was Noel Field taken prisoner by the Russians, and you and I will explain to our listeners why that was, but one by one, his family disappeared behind the Iron Curtain. So first first Noel, then his wife Hertha, who went in pursuit of him behind the Iron Curtain. Not a smart idea. Then followed his brother, Herman, who was a very distinguished architect, who then was also incarcerated. And last but not least, the heroine of our saga, Noel and Herta's adoptive daughter, Erica Wallach, all disappeared behind behind the curtain. And in Erica's case, she was dispatched to the coldest regions of the Gulag archipelago. And for many, many years, the Field family was given up for lost. And my parents helped to kind of reveal that indeed they were all 
alive. Really is amazing stuff. And and like I said, I'm so glad that we could finally share this. It's what a saga for that whole family. And it was it was so preventable as well, quite frankly, but really amazing. So mm. let's let's go back to the beginning in that case. Can you talk about his upbringing and how that kind of led him down this sure. idealistic path that turned into something else? Sure, sure. Well, one of the major takeaways, Justin, from this saga is that it isn't enough to want to do good in the world. You also have to have judgment. And that mm. is something mm -hmm. that Noel Field lacked almost entirely. Yes. But the family is a high wasp New England family, you know, Mayflower vintage, settled in, in Boston and mostly Quakers, but literally they settled in Boston in the 17th century. So we're talking about solid Yankee roots, which makes makes the fact that he became a diehard communist even more astonishing. He grew up expatriate in Zurich, Switzerland, where his father was a distinguished biologist. The young Noel admired his father beyond the normal admiration the kid has and tried very hard to live up to his father's standards and became, like his father, a pacifist. His father had taken young Noel on a journey of a World War I battlefields in Europe, notably Verdun, which was one of the you know, bloodiest uh, of all the many bloody battlefields of World War I, and, and said to his son, make sure this doesn't happen again, that hundreds of thousands of lives aren't spilled on fighting for useless bits of land. And Noel took that very much to heart. When his father died suddenly, he did as he thought his father wanted him to do, which is to come to attend Harvard, where several generations in the family had gone. And he never fit in to the American, to American society, to certainly not to the privileged youth that then swarmed in Harvard. And so he, he was sort of the eternal outsider, which made him kind of a lonely guy and always looking for, well, comrades looking for a surrogate family that made him susceptible to communist recruiters. And the recruiting happened in Washington, where he was working for the State Department in a dream job. He was a rising star. He was super bright, again, emotionally immature, but intellectually brilliant. He was en route to a pretty smooth career. But we're talking, we're now in the in the 20s and early 30s. This is just before America's kind of on its knees, you know, with, with in incredible poverty, unemployment, the depression had just ravaged the country before FDR came in with his, with all his social reform programs. The gap between rich and poor and between whites and blacks, all of this really was a bruising thing for this young, idealistic, lacking in judgment, Noel Field, to absorb. And what he didn't realize was that he was under observation by communist recruiters targeting just such a person, vulnerable and, and well-placed to spy for Moscow. And again, we have to emphasize, because we have to place things in their historic perspective, that, that this was before, before anybody knew just how brutal Stalin was. This was before mm -hmm. the, the show trials had been exposed, and communism had a huge appeal for young Americans. And, and seem to be kind of the, the way of the future, whereas we seem to be running out of gas. And that made Noel Field's recruitment not a tough sell. Mm -hmm. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, the early 1930s, mid-1930s, it was a pretty easy under, it's easy for me to understand that people would look around and see that you know feel like capitalism had failed and that you know potentially socialism or communism were the way ahead yep. and we have hindsight to show you know a lot of things that were not known and had not even happened yet at that point but Cody do you happen to know was he recruited or initially was he approached because of like a tip off from someone else in the state department or was it because of his activism like how did they first kind of home in on him? Well, there were eyes trained on him, both inside the State Department, and certainly the name Alger Hiss comes to mind, because Alger Hiss was his great mm -hmm. friend, who was a secret communist working in the State Department, very much wanted his friend Noel to join him in as a clandestine member of the Communist Party. You know, Alger Hiss, I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with him, but his story, which I tell in True Believer, is also remarkable. He died denying that he was a communist. And I, I think I prove definitively that he was indeed a communist. And I, I mm -hmm. had the good fortune of being able to interview a lot of people who were still alive, not mostly no longer with us, who knew his and knew Field, including members of Noel Field's family, who were very helpful to me because they felt as betrayed by Noel, their brother, father, son, as anyone else, because he lied to them. One of the first things that you learn as an agent is to be a very good liar, because that is part of your duty to the party, and the party is never wrong. And so Noel started smuggling documents from the State Department to his minder, who was straight out of uh, Raymond Chandler novel, Hedy Massing, a mm -hmm. mediocre German actress who was a much better agent than she was an actress. But anyway, she, <laughs> she lured Noel into her web, and he really thrived in this kind of double life, the secret life of, of an agent. He felt, for the first time in his life, he felt, he felt like his life had meaning, and he felt absolutely convinced of the rightness of his cause. And and that's what I meant about a capt captive mind. It, you know, if captive, if captured early enough, it's very hard to to get out from under that. And, and that is, is so reminiscent of the cult that communism was for many in this generation, searching for a faith, searching for a meaning at a time when when our country um seemed really on very shaky ground. And there was a mm -hmm. trial of, of two Italians, Sacco and Vanzetti, that also played a huge role in, in persuading young Americans, such as Nolfield, that our country was corrupt and racist and hopeless. Sacco and Vanzetti were a couple of, of Italian workers, fresh immigrants, spoke with very thick accents. In those days, the American prejudice was directed at, at Italians called WAPs, as they were referred to in, during their trial. And they were executed for, for crimes they didn't commit. And for Noel Field, this was devastating and proof that, that America was worthless and made him an even stronger servant of Moscow, ready to do pretty much anything that was asked of him, but all the while persuading himself that he was on the side of the angels, that he was a good guy, that he was doing what his what his dad, whom he hero worshipped, would have wanted, which is helping world communism. Mm -hmm. So was that, that was the tipping point then where he went from 
activist and ideologue to actual spy? Was it the Sacco and Vanzetti trial or was there, was there some other moment as well that turned him? I think the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, which he describes, I have a letter in my book in which he writes about what that meant to him and, and the injustice of it. And, you know, he cloaked everything he did as, as a righteous cause and including totally betraying his own family and, and betraying his country. He cloaked that in, in the righteousness and the blindness, I guess, any cult requires, a suspension mm-hmm. of critical judgment. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So at this point, he's close to the top. I mean, he has excellent access within the State Department, right? So is that what he is doing for them? Is he just passing along State Department cables or or something like that? Yes. And he is obviously being groomed for bigger things. He is not what you call a brilliant spy. He's not in the in the league with a Kim Philby because he's he's kind of a bumbling character who's not a very good liar. And um, he's he doesn't make a very strong impression on the Moscow trained recruiters. <laughs> but he is what they used to call a useful idiot. That is to say, <laughs> I mean, it's a harsh term. No, it's true. It, it comes up more than once, certainly. Yeah. He was willing to do anything, including murder an associate when asked to do that because he was by now a captive mind. When he was given the opportunity to work for the League of Nations in Geneva, he seized that opportunity as a way to, he had some residual qualms about about spying on his own government, you know, sitting in the State Department and copying documents to give to Moscow or spiriting them out in his briefcase. Going to the League of Nations kind of blurred that line of treachery against his own country. So in Geneva, he observed the failure not only of the U.S., but of the, of the Western coalition of nations, the mm. failure to stand up to fascism. And the only, the only country that appeared to be, we're now in the 30s with the, with the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and Franco, and the only people fighting the Nazis were the communists. And the critical event for, for that generation, for Field's generation, was the Spanish Civil War, which was really the magnet for all the quote-unquote right-thinking young people, because it was a real crusade. It was a real war between the fascists and the Democrats, because as you know, Franco had tremendous help. Franco, the the Spanish fascist, had tremendous support from Hitler and Mussolini, who were basically Mm -hmm. testing the weapons that they were planning on using in a larger battle in the coming world war in Spain against the Spanish population to overthrow a democratically elected Republican government of Spain. And Field was there, as were Pretty much, you know, all the crusading intellectuals of the era, from George Orwell to Hemingway to Dos Passos to Martha Gellhorn, Robert Kappa, it was the testing ground for that generation. I, I, I can't think of anything comparable. I don't think the war in Ukraine has elicited that kind of a passionate reaction. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the Vietnam War, for my father's generation elicited passions, but more anti than pro. 
Anyway, in Spain, he met, and this is crucial to subsequent events, he met a lot of future communist leaders. And these were not necess- not all of them Moscow's puppets. These were nationalist communists. I mean, there, there were communists who wanted to really do good for their own countries, not just servile communists carrying out Moscow's orders. And meeting these future communist leaders would would have very grave consequences in the post-war years. Oh, certainly. Cody, one thing that really shocked me and impressed me in the book is just how incredibly well organized all of these groups were and all the people that he met. I mean, they were so effective at kind of influencing events and pushing their narratives and acquiring the logistical support and that sort of thing that they needed. And it was not really well recognized at all in so many cases. It seems like a lot of the people that Noel was working with, I mean, they were really, really spreading out and spreading influence all over the place and doing so very, very effectively. Yeah. And because we were allies with the Soviets, with Stalin, this was, you know, we were allies fighting fighting the Nazis. The lines were sort of blurred between Americans and future leaders of East Bloc nations. And for example, Alan Dulles, who was with the OSS, uh, heading, heading the OSS in Europe in those days, working for Wild Bill Donovan and would become the director of central intelligence, he had contact with Noel Field. And this, once the Soviets needed more than a useful idiot, but somebody who was going to demonstrate that the ranks of the Soviet infrastructure was seeded with traitors and spies, because of course, Mm -hmm. Stalin, like every autocrat, always needs demons and, and enemies. It didn't bother him one bit that the people that he chose to parade as enemies of the great Soviet empire were loyal communists, as as Noel Field was with his last breath. He was a loyal communist. But now we're post-war, so it's 1948. Stalin has just broken with the head of the Yugoslav Communist Party, Tito, who was a brazen nationalist communist. Brazen, I say, because he didn't take orders from, from Moscow. And and Stalin was furious that someone in his empire, in his camp, would opt to care more about his own country, Yugoslavia, than about what Moscow's plans for that country. <laughs> so in, in other words, Tito was a nationalist and Mm -hmm. unforgivable in Stalin's books. So he ordered up all the satellite states, that is to say, not sure if everybody these days knows what the Soviet satellites were, but they were the states that Moscow basically occupied in the post-war era until the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall in 1989. So we're talking about Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, the entire East Bloc. And all those countries were ordered to stage show trials of Titoists, so-called. So people who Mm. who supported Tito over Stalin. And these were absolute farcical events. They were pure theater meant to spread terror and meant to make sure that, that others don't even think about following national policies over Moscow's laid down policies. So... 
before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. Noel Field was the perfect target because he knew all these all these communist leaders, all these nationalist communist leaders from Spain. And he was an American and therefore already guilty, never mind that he betrayed his, his own country to serve Stalin in whatever way he could. He made a perfect candidate for a trial as a Titoist. And that's why he, I referred earlier to how he was abducted in Prague and taken to a Budapest prison. Now, he was never tried. He was kept in miserable circumstances in a maximum security prison, of course, tortured, and tortured into confessing that all these people that Stalin wanted to weed out of their leadership positions, that he in fact had recruited them, had had contact with them, and that they were all they were all in cahoots in their anti-Moscow policies. And once they had that confession from him, he was kind of useless and just left to, well, rot in prison until he became sort of an embarrassment because after Stalin died in 19... The whole process of de-Stalinization started and word of slowly the State Department, whose employee he had been, started rousing itself you know, whatever happened to this guy and whatever happened to his family, whatever happened to his wife and his brother and his daughter. And so slowly attention was focused on on this. I mean, this was an American family that had disappeared behind the Iron Curtain. Therein hangs my tale of how they ultimately, one one by one, were freed and how one by one they told the most horrific tales of of torture and survival, the Mm. most dramatic of all, and really she's the heroine of True Believer, is what happened to Erica, his adopted daughter. She was adopted by, by Noel and Noel's wife, Hertha, who were childless in Spain. She was the daughter of German physicians who couldn't, when Franco triumphed over the Republicans in Spain. They had to flee. But Erica, she was, I think, 15 years old at the time. She had typhoid, so she couldn't travel. So they left her. I mean, you know, war imposes terrible choices. And Mm -hmm. in the care of Mr. and Mrs. Field, who offered to look after her. Field also had deep humanitarian instincts. So he was for a good while 
complicated character, this guy, Field. But he was for a good, good long time working for a Unitarian services organization looking after refugees coming out of the Spanish Civil War. And that's how he got to Erica and was helping to raise Erica and hoping that Erica would follow him toward communism. But Erica was a very headstrong young woman who went her own way but felt a loyalty to her adoptive father who really kind of saved her life. And when he disappeared behind the Iron Curtain, she followed his tracks and ended up in the most treacherous camp of the Soviet penal colony in the northernmost tip of the Gulag Archipelago under horrific circumstances, but she was a survivor. And I spent time with, she's no longer alive, but I spent time with her children and tell the tale of, of their mother, Erica, who, who really tried to be loyal to the father who had you know, betrayed everybody, but refused to follow his faith, i.e., communism. Yes, yes. She, she really is an incredible person. I'm so glad that you were able to cover her life story. It's, it's not easy to find a whole lot of information about her outside of her book, I've noticed, but I know that she kind of, I don't know if I'd say what the right euphemism is, dipped her toe in with the communists a little bit, but she very quickly saw right through it in a way that Noel never could and right. never did, right. obviously. And so she was, she like you said, she loved them for what they did for her, but she never fell for anything in the way that they did. Yeah, yeah. No, I had really good luck in penetrating her story via her children and other relatives. Really, if this is ever turned into a, a movie, which it really should be, I see her as the female lead because she more than survived Stalin's, the worst that Stalin had to dish out. She kind of thrived in the hardships of the camps. She, she made friends. She even had a little bit of a romance with a guard. Then happily, she had a shot at a whole other life in suburban Virginia. So there was some belated justice in, in her case. But in the case of Noel, he really never disavowed his communism, even having you know, suffered at the at the hands of his comrades, the worst possible fate, you know, that is being locked up for many years, not seeing his wife, not seeing anybody. And he never apologized to his devoted brother who, you know, went looking for him and also ended up in a Polish jail, mm. and Herman, the architect. The reason that he was freed was that his interrogator, his communist interrogator, defected to Washington. There was a big news conference. His name was Joseph Sviatlo, and he astonished the Washington press corps by saying, the entire family is alive. They're all alive, I know, because I interrogated them. That's really how, in the mid-50s, word got out that the fields, the, the vanished field family, were still alive. And that's what forced Moscow to release them. With the exception of Noel Field and his wife Hertha, who opted to stay behind the Iron Curtain because they frankly didn't want to face the music in Washington. Because by now, they had been outed as agents and they didn't want to go through that. So they opted to stay in, in my homeland of Hungary, which is where they lived rather diminished lives. This man who started off in life with extremely grandiose dreams of doing 
wonderful things and living living up to his father's expectations of preventing World War II, lived as a very, very quiet, rather pathetic character in a country whose language he never mastered. Hungarian is an impossible language. Never apologized or, or recanted his communism. In fact, when the first thing he asked his wife when they were reunited the day they were freed from, from their Budapest prison was, have you stayed true? And he did not mean, have you stayed true to me? He meant, have you stayed true to our faith, communism? And then the second question that he asked the jailer who was letting them who was processing their liberation, was, is Stalin still alive? And when told that Stalin was dead, they both sobbed. So if ever two people were under a very, very dangerous messiah-like creature, it was these two. But it was it was Noel Field, really, because his, his wife would have followed him anywhere. But it was Noel who was captured by this very dangerous cult. Right, right. I, I certainly got the impression that Herta was more a devoted spouse yes. than anything else throughout. And so if he had, you know, converted to any other ideology or policy, he would she would have followed wholeheartedly Absolutely. as well. But she was also an active participant in everything. So she's not, you know, blameless or innocent bystander or anything. No, by which any is means. which is why they, they opted to stay behind the Iron Curtain, mm-hmm. which is where they live because they knew that, that they would be tried and convicted if they chose to return and their American citizenship had been revoked. And but it was very, very painful for, you know, I interviewed the family and, you know, a terrible rupture in the family to have he was the eldest brother and they spent so much time looking for him. And I detail all that, the sacrifices they made for for this brother who they never kind of gave up hoping that he'd he'd see the light, that he'd disavow his early dependence it, i mean it is it was a dependence it was it was like a like a drug communism i mean that yeah. that generation had many such this is just in, in some ways the most dramatic instance because it was such a a well-born you might say an american aristocrat who who signed up with moscow before he understood <laughs> what stalin and stalinism was about and by the time there was evidence of stalin's cruelty and t- absolute indifference noel field had swallowed the drug and and needed needed that drug that was it's very it's very hard to admit to a mistake of that magnitude that you know it wasn't it wasn't just a bad career move it was a terrible life decision mm-hmm. to sign up with the enemy Connie, i'm very curious if we can go back for just a moment to his actual time in prison he's being brutalized it's by the people that he thinks they're all on the same side how did he justify in his own mind his imprisonment like what did he think was happening to him all of that time that would allow him to keep his faith for so many years in prison in a very brutal system. Well, it's, you know, the human capacity for rationalization is is unlimited. And he rationalized that by persuading himself that, that he was on the right side, that America, that capitalism was a corrupt, racist, unjust, hopeless, greedy, 
way of life and that all the good things came from the East and that it was just, you know, a few bad policy mistakes that, that could eventually be corrected and that it was human error. I mean, you know, you can rationalize anything. And then when he was following the Vietnam War from, from Budapest, from his now freed position in, in Budapest, and that confirmed for him that America was a rotten system. I'm sure that he took some some pleasure as he would have in in uh, the catastrophic war in Iraq and Afghanistan that confirmed his own view that this country didn't deserve to survive in its present form and that ultimately the east communism was on the right side of history and that he Noel Field was going to stick stick with it Right. I mean, of of course, I know that we all have our internal biases and that sort of thing, but it really is amazing that he could live through what he did, you know, things he experienced to himself and rationalize that away. But then, like you said, he can watch what happens in Vietnam and yeah. decide that that is that defines America entirely. And the whole system needs to needs to crash because of something he sees happening on the news on the opposite side of the world. Right. Right. Really but, yeah. But I mean, he need that for his own sanity. Because right. at that point, his whole life would to admit that he had bet on the wrong horse would have would have made a mockery of his life and and all his life choices and the and the terrible pain that he put his family through. And by the way, to say nothing of all the people who were led to the gallows because under duress he had named them as co. Right. I mean, co. Yeah, he was responsible for many deaths, yes. wasn't he? Yes, countless. I think, I, I want to say, I mean, like in the hundreds, wasn't it? I mean, I, I don't think we know specifically, but he had a lot of names in his mind because he networked with so many people right, over right. the years. From Spain. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. It's a tragic tale, but an important one, I think, for us to for us to be studying and, and learning from. You know, people <laughs> people are susceptible to charismatic leaders promising a final correction of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. once once Field, you know, inhaled the the promise of communism, there was no room for doubt in his mind, and that mm-hmm. that was of anything. And from that, he could rationalize anything. Incredible. So there was one anecdote in the book that really stuck with me, and I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase it a little bit because I don't remember the exact details. But after his release. He's in Budapest and he's working at like a newspaper office or a magazine office, yes. I think. And I know that he got into an argument with one of his coworkers. And I guess he was he was rationalizing away some of the brutality to him and to others. And the person that he's explaining to, you know, he's saying, you know, mistakes were made. People were overzealous, that kind of thing. And the person he was talking to had had all of his fingernails pulled right. out and all of his teeth pulled out. Yes. So he's arguing with a guy who's had his body parts pulled out with pliers yes. and Noel saying, well, they made a few mistakes, but overall it's a good system. Just, just unbelievable to me. Like how, how in the world yes. could you live with yourself I, and not realize what yeah. you're saying in that moment? I actually interviewed that, that gentleman. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. No, I mean, he, Noel Field was, was the only communist in, in that office, and, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is kind of, Ironic. But, you know, when my parents found him during the chaos of the Hungarian Revolution and surprised him, obviously they didn't have an appointment because he he never saw Western media. Mm-hmm. So they kind of crashed into his house. Uh, I mean, they rang the doorbell, but they surprised him, which is why he got in. 
which is why my father and mother got in. <laughs> the thing that struck them was that actually Hertha seemed seemed stronger than Noel, that Noel was the one who was really beaten down because at some level, he was an intelligent man after all, had to have known that his life was a series of catastrophic mistakes mm. and that he ended up in this East, East European backwater instead of living a good life in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as his brother was. But that Hertha, who was sustained by her love for, for Noel, seemed the more determined and more of a survivor than Noel, whose multiple betrayals really kind of wore him down. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's really is amazing. And, you know, poor Herta, I, I have more sympathy for her, even though yeah. she you know, was responsible for her own actions, of course. But on top of her, I mean, she had this undying loyalty to him. And yet at the same time, I, I know we didn't speak about it, but he had like multiple affairs during their marriage as well. So he betrayed oh, his yes. wife along with his country and the people, his fellow communists and everything. So just one betrayal after another. Yes, I suppose once you once you start down that road, it gets it gets easier with practice. Yeah. Yeah. And he and did every learn, night he goes to bed thinking he's the good guy too. It's amazing. He, yes, and he did learn from his Soviet recruiters and minders that lying is in the service of the cause and that there's nothing wrong with lying. Mhm. Mm yeah, well he he certainly lived that, no question about it. <laughs> so Cody, did he ultimately, did he experience any remorse like on his deathbed or anything like that that we're aware of or any, you know, final perspective in the end? Or did he, did he die still a true believer like he lived? He died a true believer. And, and oh, yeah, which is why I chose that title. He was a fanatic, a quiet fanatic, not a noisy one, but he was absolutely a, a fanatic and he built, he built his life around a false god. There was no way that he could own up to that. And, you know, the Quaker pacifism of his youth really didn't serve him well, because there are times in life when you have to stand up and take a, a stronger position. I was researching the family's history, you know, going back to the 17th century, and even during the Revolutionary War, the Field family was what was referred to as between the lines. That is to say, they were neither pro-British nor pro-American. Mm. They just kind of tried to walk that fine line. You know, there are situations that call for taking a, a stronger moral position than that. And he, mm -hmm. he just didn't have the backbone for that. Supremely intelligent. He passed the Foreign Service exam at age 19. But as I said earlier, you need, in, in addition to having good intentions and, and high intelligence, you also need human judgment. And that right. he just lacked miserably. Yeah, that was unfortunate for everyone around him. All of his loved ones suffered so much. Yes, and you know, in a way, of course, his father passed away young. But I have—I hate to think what his father would have thought, you know, seeing the path that his son well, took in life. Because I think that was incredibly wise of his father to take him to that battlefield, to take him to Verdun afterwards. Absolutely. I mean, what a wonderful life lesson that could have been for for almost anyone else, really. I thought about that when I was writing True Believer of of what a difference it might have made if his if his father would have been there to to guide him because this was mm -hmm. a, a youngster, a young man who really needed guidance. He was very vulnerable. He was, uh, mm -hmm. as I said earlier, he was, he was always the outsider 
and thus susceptible. Yeah, very much so. More so than anyone just about, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. What an incredible story. So like I said, so many jaw-dropping moments throughout. And I have to tell you, Kati, I'm usually, I, I try to feel a lot of empathy towards people because I cover a lot of stories that involve betrayal and treachery and that kind of thing. That's, that's a very common theme here on the podcast, but you know, it's rare for me to develop like a real visceral dislike for anyone, but I, I did for, for Noel by the end of this book, honestly, most people I can kind of understand their actions and the, the context of their, their lives and the era and all that. But him, I'm like, my gosh, what is, what is wrong with you? Just a terrible person. I know, I know. That's why I was so happy to seize on an Erica, the daughter, because I spend years on writing my books, and it's kind of like a, like a marriage, and and you don't want to spend it in the company of, of people that in no way inspire or excite you. And Erica was a very inspiring character. So I seized on her. I tried to portray that era, you know, between the wars and, and when America really was, was struggling and how this whole generation and Noel was part of that generation and Alger Hiss and many others who were susceptible. John, John Reed, who wrote the great book, Five Days That Shook the World, Russian Revolution. They all went looking for some alternative to what they saw as this crumbling nation that we were then. But, you know, America has has tremendous powers of recovery. We did recover. We were lucky to have, you know, a man of vision in the White House who got us through mm -hmm. both the Depression and the Second World War, FDR. Leaders matter. Leaders make a difference. And Noel Field grew up when we didn't have very strong leaders in the White House or we didn't, you know, it was Hoover and it was Coolidge. And there was very little inspirational or, or visionary leadership. Right. And by the time right. FDR came along, this generation was kind of lost. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, fertile ground for the communist recruiters, certainly. Yeah. Hopefully our children do better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Cotty, this is incredible. And I, I really love the book for all of you out there. I cannot recommend this book strongly enough. It's True Believer by Cotty Martin. And if we have not covered everything in the book by any stretch, uh -huh. there's so much more, especially about Erica, honestly, who is just an incredible, incredible woman, incredible human being, honestly, everything she went through and all the fires that she faced and she just came through it stronger than anything. It really forged her into something special. Certainly. So I mm. highly recommend the book. You're going to find a lot of jaw dropping moments there. Like I said, uh, are, are you working on another book right now or do you have other projects? I uh, am. I'm all, yes. You know, it's a, it's a disease. I'm always working on a book. I, <laughs> I, I tell my children, this is book number 11 I'm working on. And I always, oh, when, gosh. I, when I finish, my last one was, was a biography of Chancellor Angela Merkel of, of Germany. And when I finished that, I said, okay, now I'm taking, I'm going to rejoin the human race and, and I'm going to take a little break because when you're working on a book, you're, you're only half present because you're usually, mm. your mind is usually trying to work on how, you, how you're going to finish that paragraph. I understand. I definitely understand. But my children by now just roll their eyes and, and they, they don't with <laughs> me. So I, I am working on a book about, about the founder of Israel, Theodore Herzl, his journey. Oh, from, wow. Yeah. He was from my hometown of Budapest. His journey from being an absolutely assimilationist, pro-assimilationist Jew to becoming the founder of Israel. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I do not know much about him. Honestly, I have covered a little bit about the foundation of Israel here on the podcast in the past, but not him. So I, I look forward to reading that. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear you don't 
know everything about it. No, oh, I love I love learning about that period of history. Believe me. Oh, good, good, good. Do you have a, a time frame for publication already? No, so early days. Early? I'm just now just reading yeah. everything I can get my hands on, which is how I uh, okay. which is how I start before I put a single word to paper. I I just read and read and read and and master the material and try to figure out a way to get at the story that hasn't been done before because there's no point in retelling stories that have been told. So I try to find sure, sure. ways into the story that that are different, original. Yeah, well, that's certainly what you did with True Believer from my, my experience with oh. one of your books anyway. So I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Well it's been thank it's you. been a pleasure to talk to you and and thank you for for reading it and for totally getting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly right up my alley and I know that my listeners love it as well. Kavi, do you have a, like public social media profiles or a website if people want to look you up after they listen to this? Well, I'm, there's probably way too much stuff about me on, you know, there's a wiki page. So if you just Google me. Yeah, you have a high profile. Yeah. Yeah. There's all the books are described. Yeah. I'd love it if you're, if your listeners check me out. <laughs> Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it, Cotty. Take care. I, I appreciate it as well. Thanks, Justin. Stay warm. <laughs> I'll do my best. I promise. <laughs> Thanks. Good night. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.